the groove. Man, that's a sweet groove. Old Blue Note Records have that deep groove. I dig that groove. Go for the groove. You can always pick up the needle and move to another groove. Listen to old funk records, the groove is so heavy. Drop out, turn on, and groove with the chemicals. Get back into the groove. Sometimes I hear a drum groove in my head. After you got the groove, you're just singing the hooks. They were the only band on that scene that had a groove. That sort of music puts me in a different groove. There's a certain groove you pick that makes the music flow. You fly through space without hitting things or anybody, then you get into the groove. We groove off everything. Then the audience would just take over and keep the groove going. You know, we had that groove. A lot of melodies are very simple, but it's got this groove. Listen to Groovasaurus every Sunday morning from 6 to 9 on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. But my love, by the gasworks wall, dream the dream by the old canal. I kiss my girl by the factory wall, dirty old town, dirty old town. Are drifting across the moon. Cats are prowling on their beams. Springs a girl from the streets at night. Dirty old Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have Robert Hass here in the studio. Um, Robert, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure <laughs> to be here. This is, I should say, this is taped on September 23rd, 2011, and this is our conversation part two, isn't it, Bob? That's right. Because <laughs> the the, the last time when, when you came on Living Writers, I'm sure you've been in town in the interim. <laughs> I don't get to snag you every time you come through. <laughs> Lucky for you. But um, it was, I think it was when you came for Day with Without Art. That's right. Um, and that was maybe, was that back in... Um, uh, maybe 2008? 2008. Or, or, yes. So we're just picking up a conversation we left off. We are. <laughs> <laughs> An ellipsis. <laughs> well, it's so great to see you. And, and now you're in town. Well, you've, you've come for um, the, the celebration of Miloš, uh, Made in America. Uh -huh. And we're actually talking after the fact now. It, it happened yesterday evening. Yes, um, last night the Center for uh, Eastern European Studies was one of the great places in Ann Arbor, place that I, when I was in college finding my way into poetry and finding and also into European poetry, trying to understand what had happened. in the, And I found my way into the scholarly parts of the library. It was the Michigan Publications 
in Eastern Europe that you know that were publishing then the early poems of Brod, Joseph Brodsky when he first ri- r- arrived here and with I heard first heard of Miłosz through that so anyway it was really fun to be in this place it, it this is Chesov was born in uh, 1911 and so this is his centenary he died five years ago now um, was it 2004 I think it was two thousand. Yeah, it was two thousand four. Seems I still miss him. Um, anyway, so we they there was a film, a Polish film about his life in America called Czesław Miłosz, Made in America, and then afterwards, um, Bogdana Carpenter, who is the chair of the well, is now retired chair of the. Slavic languages department. She's been on here. the show too, and a, a spectacular translator of another great Polish poet, Zbigniew Herbert. And she was a student of Miłosz's when he first arrived in the States uh, at Berkeley. Um, I think he arrived in '61, and she was a graduate student in his class, a Polish girl, at at uh, in 1963 he must have been so happy to ha- see her have her in class as well he said no she no. said no <laughs> that he was his he was a bit suspicious he the polish community did not embrace him when he arrived here it was mostly the the culture of m of american Polonia, as they say, was very conservative and very Catholic, and from his point of view, very right wing. And he had been, uh, you know, a young leftist in the 30s. Uh, he was not a friend of Russian communism because Russia's imperial relation to. But after the war, when it was de facto that the Russians owned Poland, he, as he said in the film, he said, I was a fatalist. I thought they were going to be there forever. I joined the government to see what I could do. So he became a diplomat for the Polish government and did that for a few years until, and then realized he couldn't. He just, he was not going to be able to operate he in that system. He couldn't be an arm of the government. Well, yeah. once they started enforcing social realism as an aesthetic and censoring everybody's writing, he was here. He was in New York and then in Washington. In fact, he first went to Washington. None of this got into the film, which was about this European exile in Berkeley in the 60s, you know, place full of kids with tie-dye shirts. (laughs) But the the image that I had in mind was of Miłosz. When the Nazi, when the German army left Warsaw, having killed 250,000 people in the Warsaw Rising, they dynamited the street out of sheer vindictiveness, dynamited the city block by block as they retreated and as the Russian army moved in. And so he went from absolute rubble to Washington, D.C. in the spring in 1949, a Jim Crow town with black men selling slices of watermelon on street corners, dogwood in bloom, he said, pretty girls in big, creamy, packard convertibles with their mitts, <laughs> fenders, and those Glenn Miller swing music issuing from the car radios. He, he You know, it was, it was dazing to be. Yeah, that would do your head in yeah, a bit. Yeah, suddenly. How can these be two realities that are 
both true at the yeah. same time. Anyway, this man, well, that, which is one of the great things in his poetry, is trying to put account for the impossibility of everything that's going on in the world at the same time, or even of getting a little bit of it accurately in words. And and I love how you've you've mentioned before uh, this idea of this um in this almost this pressure he felt or mission because if he didn't get it into a poem, then it could be losing the battle against nothingness. Yeah, or... yeah, that was that absolutely was the way he thought about it. Uh, what what a pressure yeah. to to bring to it, but I, I, it's a way to to create. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, in some of his poems, it, it issues in a f- furious sense of play, and others. Because he others, had a uh, laugh, didn't he? he? Had he was a he was a, yeah. a laugher. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of a of a bit of a poem that would give your listeners a quick sense of that uh, of that uh, thing in him. If not now, when? This is written in the late 1970s in Berkeley when he pretty much thought that he'd lost. He'd gone into exile. His poetry couldn't be published in his own country. And he started this group of poems called The Separate Notebooks in which he just kind of, by saying that, gave himself permission to muse on his situation. If not now, when? Here is the Phoenix airfield. I see the cones of volcanic mountains. And I think of all that I have not said about the word to suffer and the word sufferance and how one can bear a lot by training anger until it gets tired and gives up. Here is the island of Kauai, an emerald set among white clouds, warm wind in the palm leaves, and I think of snow in my distant province where things happen that belong to another almost inconceivable life. The bright side of the planet moves toward darkness and the big cities are falling asleep each in its hour. And for me now, as then, it is too much. There is too much world. And then there's a little prose musing after that. In these, he allows himself to do that, waiting indefinitely, every day and in every hour, hungry, a spasm in the throat, staring at the face of every woman passing in the street, wanting her, really wanting all the earth, inhaling with dilated nostrils the smells of bakeries, roasting coffee, wet vegetables, in thought, devouring every dish and drinking every drink, preparing myself for absolute possession, which of course cannot happen. And so on. Milos, then, is this, want me, then the way this particular poem, it moves from thought to thought with incredible violence. And the next, imagine him imagining a lover long perished, then addressing him in the middle of this poem. Oh, you talked, but after your talking, everything else remains. After your talking, you poets, philosophers, contrivers of romances, everything else, all the rest, deduced inside the flesh, which lives and knows, not just what is permitted. I am a woman held now in a great silence. Not all creatures have your need for words. Birds you killed, fish you tossed into your boat. In what words will they find rest? 
and in what heaven? You received gifts from me. They were accepted. But you don't understand how to think about the dead. The scent of winter apples, of hoarfrost, and of linen. There are nothing but gifts on this poor, poor earth. So then he does a, a complete switch where he's speaking uh, as a woman who has gone died. It, yeah. What what a leap. Yeah. And, and so and this and is then connected what, in and, the notebooks. Then. Yeah. And then what oh. follows from that is a little prose meditation on women's underwear. <laughs> and and how how and how and how women learn the girl toolkit. <laughs> oh really? He says they learn it in a dark academy. <laughs> this begins. It begins. A dark academy. Assembled are instructresses in corsets, grammarians of petticoats, poets of unmentionables with lace. The curriculum includes feeling the touch of silk against the skin, listening to the rustle of a dress, raising the chin when the ostrich feather on the hat sways. They teach the use of everything customary, Long gloves up to the elbows, a fan, lowered eyelashes, bows, as well as human speech. Also, so that a faience chamber pot, even if a painted eye looks up roguishly from the bottom, is called a vessel. <laughs> and a brazier, lifting the breast, bears the name soutien-gorge. And in the spirit of French great-grandmothers who remember the red coats of English soldiers, a menstruation is announced as the English have arrived. <laughs> the superior method in Cheeky. goal <laughs> superior method in goal lies in a hardly noticeable smile. For everything is only make believe, all of it. The sounds of orchestras and promenades paintings in their gilded frames, the hymns and chorales in churches, marble sculptures, the speeches of statesmen, and the words of chronicles. In reality, there is only a sensation of warmth and glueiness inside, also a sober watchfulness when one advances to meet that delicious and dangerous thing that has no name, though people call it life. So on. And so on. Anyway. And these are in the separate notebooks. This is, yeah, it's this long poem called The Separate Notebooks. And to me, it's one of the, the great knockout poems of the past, you know, 50 years. And this is this is a project that when you first met Milos, right, Bob, early this, yeah, on? Yeah, this, this was one of the first ones I started working on. And I, I was interested in his early work, actually. I was trying to... Uh, make a translation of a of a famous poem that he wrote in very childish language language of a children's book in the middle of the Nazi occupation of Warsaw he wrote this poem called a world and he said well it can't be translated it's rhymed and it's so uh, a, a Polish friend I met a Polish woman we who we've since become very dear friends, but at Renata, the time, Renata, Renata Gorczynski, who we worked with with Robert Pinsky on the separate notebooks, and I said to Renata, "Can you help me with the with the world? I'm trying to understand. <laughs> I didn't read any Polish at all. I'm trying right. to understand." And she said, "Well, yeah, but have you do you know have you read the poetry this guy has been writing lately?" And I said, "No, of course not. It's in Polish. I haven't seen it." And she said, "Well." He, He's writing his most amazing poems right now. And she started sight reading 
translating these poems for me. Uh, how many before me crossed over the frontier of words, knowing the futility of speech in a century of phantoms which were terrifying but meant nothing? What am I to do with the conductor of the Trans-Siberian Railway, with the lady to whom travelers offered a ring from Mongolia for a very cheap price, with singing expanses of telephone wires and lush coupés and a station after the third bell. This is the Trans-Siberian Express remembered from his childhood. His father was an engineer in the Russian army. And so as, as one of his infant memories, early memories, is of going through Siberia, this Trans-Siberian Express. Oh, Robert, it, yes, et cetera, is, et cetera. Anyway, this is, it's this amazing. Is amazing. This yeah. is, this is, I feel like this, this morning is this, um, this conversation is a continuing tribute to me. Loesch. <laughs> this is amazing. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Uh, you're listening today to living writers today. Robert Hass is here. His latest, the apple trees at Olima new and selected poems. We'll be back. <laughs> If you're just tuning in, it's a lucky day because Robert Hass is here in the studio on Living Writers. Um, I'm I'm T. Hetzel, and and thanks to the Liz Liz Wason for engineering, and and Robert, it's so great that you're here. It's just I'm just so pleased. Um, I'm holding in my hand a copy of the um, the UK version of uh, the Apple Trees at Olima um, Blood Axe books, um, but the US version exists from Echo Press. That's right. And and um and and so uh, this this is a lovely addition. <laughs> yeah, it's really beautiful. There, there's a you want your listeners are of course not going to see it, but it's a fantastic bit of a Japanese print of a bird that black, white, and orange bird uh, wings wildly spread uh, among what look like red. What are those flowers? They're not magnolia-like. Uh, mm, anyway, it's it's a, quite an amazing print yes, that the English book designer found. They're they're not as delicate as a poppy, but similar, like they're slightly bit, yeah, stronger than yeah, a poppy. they're stronger than poppies. But, they, but they're a bit like the color of Iceland poppies. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, I'll know when the, the book is supposed <laughs> to arrive today. I had to read the the poem, uh, the PDF online, uh -huh. Bob, and that is, it's hard to read poems on online, like not to have the artifact yeah. of the book in your hands and uh, to be able to move yeah, among I, the poems. I never do, and they haven't figured out yet how to do, how to do formatting poems on uh, for Kindles or for anything else, though. So. Poem, poems will keep the, um, <laughs> the book around. Yeah. And it's good that they will because that makes a market for paper. And as long as there's a market for paper, people will invest in forests. This, this and that is... will keep uh, spotted owls going and it will keep um, 
uh, sequestering Club. carbon uh, <laughs> against global warming. So buy a book and save the world. <laughs> this is this is the political Bob Hass talking to you <laughs> from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, well, Bob, I got so excited and felt so comfortable right away. I forgot to read your your short bio. Uh-huh. So we're going to backtrack just for a minute, and um, and so folks can hear. Um, uh, the short bio. Robert Haas was born in 1941 in San Francisco. He served as U.S. Poet Laureate in 1995 to 97. His many awards include a, include a Pulitzer Prize and a National Book Award for Time and Materials. That's the book we last spoke about, isn't it? And the National Book Critics Circle Award for Sun Under Wood. His first collection, Field Guide, was selected by Stanley Kunitz for the Yale Younger Poet Series in 1973. Hass also worked with Cesla Miloš to translate a dozen books of Miloš's poetry, including Treatise on Poetry and, most recently, A Second Space. His translations of the Japanese haiku masters have been collected in the essential haiku versions of Basho, Busan, and Isa. His books of essays include 20th Century Pleasures, Prose on Poetry, and Now and Then, The Poet's Choice Columns. He lives in Northern California with his wife, the poet Brenda Hillman, and teaches at the University of California at Berkeley. Um, Yes. Again, I'm so, so glad you're here. Well, it's fun to be here. It's always fun to be in Ann Arbor, of course, because I have family here. That's know. right. The Kristen and the kids. And, and yeah. Yes, and my three grandchildren, Finn Magoon and Cole Magoon and Hazel Magoon, are here in town. So I feel like I um, uh, have a deep investment in this place. Yes, yeah. It was not only just reading University of Michigan Press books <laughs> back, in the, back in the day. It yeah. stretches to the present moment. Well, it's also actually the case that it was the University of Michigan the uh, that colonized and pioneered the University of California, where I teach. It was it was set up sooner, and a lot of the founding um, professors of the of the University of California came from uh, the the fledgling but farther along <laughs> University of Michigan. Really? Yeah. Who knew about, I did not yeah, have I, any idea. Yeah, I only learned idea. about that in the last few years. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for filling me in, Bob. You know, now I'm going to actually, although I don't want to, this is such a lovely book, I'm going to hand back the apple trees at Olima to you and ask you, um, for this, so the, it's new and selected poems, mm-hmm. and um, and Bob, the, the poem, though, uh, I mean, the title the, of the the book itself comes from um, an earlier book, and I just wondered what 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 occasioned that. I was um, going to uh, the, I was going to call that earlier book "Human Wishes" is the name of it, uh, the apple trees at Olima, and my editor at the time said that's too pretty for this book, and um, so we kind of. Um, you went back and forth about it. You make lists of titles, and I've never felt like I've been very good at titles. And and uh, then at some point, I heard that uh, uh, Samuel Beckett was at one point going to had the idea that he was going to call his collected works "Human Wishes," and so I thought, okay, okay. I'll go with. There is a there's an 18th century poem called "The Vanity of Human Wishes." So just saying human wishes seemed like a title. But um, on the editorial announcements of the book when it came out, 
uh, it was called the apple trees at Olima. And when I would see my bibliographies listed some places, there was always included on it a book that didn't exist called the apple trees at Olima. So, so, so then you made this ghost so I thought, book well, a reality. I'll, I'll, yes, of all that's of, right. Oh, I love that <laughs> because I wondered. I knew there must yeah. be a story to it because otherwise, one of the the new collection, the new poems in the collection, would probably have had that yeah. honor. Yeah, but it yeah. was meant to be. Uh-huh. Also, Olima is a little. Actually, it's Olima in the language of the native peoples of Northern California. It means Valley of the Coyote, and. Uh, so it, it was. I, I liked it because it was named for my home place. Yeah. Yes, and you're you're deeply West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> and well, well, let's. Can we talk about a few of the the new poems then, Bob? A little bit with the um, that I had a chance to um, I got to to read them, and um, it's lovely work and 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 much narrative. Like the storytelling mm-hmm. quality is coming through in, clearly in, in some of them. The poem that we were, or it's a little bit of a set of poems that we were talking about, that this poem was also just reprinted in um, the uh, Kevin Young's edition of the Best American Poems of 2011, which is just out, uh, edited by him. I'll make a pitch for that. And it's, it's I, I've been writing in notebooks. Um, I had the idea that having finished a book that over a stretch of years I would keep a notebook for each month so I have August notebooks September notebooks and that which means that though I this poem is called August notebook I can next August revisit this territory something in the manner of Miloš's separate notebooks I can just see where it goes so so would you does that mean bob that you have um this august notebook you'll leave off and just go to the september notebook but when august rolls around again you'll you'll turn to the next page and see what happens maybe nothing will come of it maybe it won't be the shape of a i i've sort of imagined well this could be a long poem of 12 month notebooks but i'll see Yes, yes but things come up and one of the things that came up is um is uh one Late July is the death of my younger brother. And so this poem is called August Notebook of Death. Um, And it's in several parts. And the first part is called River Bicycle Peony. And the title comes from a remark in a book of um, about poetry by uh, Carolyn Wright, C.D. Wright, when she says, sometimes all a poet wants to say is River Bicycle Peony. And this poem begins with a typographical error, which I'll garble as speech. I woke up thinking of boy my brother's body. That that was my first bit of early morning typing. So the first dignity, it turns out, is to get spelling right. I woke up thinking about my brother's body. Apparently it's at the medical examiner's morgue. I found myself wondering whether he was naked yet and whose job it was to take clothes off and when they did it. It seemed unnecessary to undress his body until they performed the exam, and that is going to happen later this morning, and so I found myself hoping that he was dressed still, though smell may be an issue or hygiene. When the police do a forced entry for the purpose of a welfare check and the deceased person is alone, 
the body goes to the medical examiner's morgue in the section for those deaths in which no evidence of foul play is involved. So the examination for cause of death is fairly routine, I was told. Two policemen, for some reason, I imagine they were young, found my brother. His body was in the bed, which was a mattress on the floor. He was lying on his back, according to Angela, my brother's friend who lives nearby and has her own troubles and always introduced herself to me as my brother's personal assistant. And she said he seemed peaceful. There would have been nothing in the room but the mattress and a microwave and ashtray, I suppose, cartons and food wrappers he hadn't thrown away in the little plastic prescription bottles that he referred to as his scripts. They must have called the medical examiner's ambulance, and that was probably a team of three. When I awoke, I visualized this narrative and the five men I think they were men who disposed of my brother's body, and I thought the telling of the story would be shorter. I thought that what would represent my feelings would be the absence of metaphor. But then at the third line, I discovered that I could write this in a three-line stanza and that that was going to be the second dignity. So I imagine he is in one of those aluminum cubicles I've seen in the movies, dressed or not. I also imagine that if they undressed him and perhaps washed his body or gave it an alcohol rub to disinfect it, that that was the job of some immigrant from a hot, poor country. Anyway, he is dressed in this stanza, which mimics the terzarima of Dante's comedy and is a form that Wallace Stevens liked to use and my dear friend Robert, and anyway, seemed peaceful, is a kind of metaphor. And the next part is the part we were talking about, and it's called Sudden and Grateful Memory of Mississippi John Hurt. Because I woke again thinking of my brother's body and why anyone would care in some future that poetry addresses how a body is transferred from the medical examiner's office, which is organized by local government and issues a certificate establishing that the person in question is in fact dead and names the cause or causes to the mortuary or cremation society, most of which are privately owned businesses and run for profit and until recently tended to be family businesses with skills and decorums passed from father to son and often quite ethnically specific in a country like ours made from crossers of borders, as if in the intimacy of death some tribal shame or squeamishness or sense of propriety asserted itself so that the Irish buried the Irish and the Italians the Italians. In the South, in the early years of the last century, it was the one business in which a black person could make, could grow wealthy and pass on a trade with a modicum of independence to his children. I know this because my friend Judith, who is now dead, wrote a piece about it for which she interviewed fourth-generation African-American morticians in California whose grandfathers and great-grandfathers had buried the dead in cotton towns on the Delta or along the Brazos River in Texas, passing on to their children who had gone west in order of doing things and symbolic forms of courtesy for the bereaved and sequences of behavior at wakes and funerals, so that, for example, the eldest woman in the maternal line entered the chapel first, and what prayers were said, and in what order. 
During Prohibition, they even sold the white lightning to the men who were allowed to slip outside and take a nip and talk about the dead while the cries and gospel song voice contralto moans of grief that could sound like elation rose inside. Also the rules for burial or burning, griefs and rituals, and inside them cosmologies. And I thought of Mississippi John Hurt's great song about Lewis Collins and its terrible tenderness, which can't be reproduced here because so much of it is in the picking of the six-string guitar and in his sweet, reedy old man's voice. And when they heard, he sings, that Lewis was dead, all the women dressed in red. The angels laid him away. They laid him six feet under the clay. The angels laid him away. Would this be a place to stop and listen to this yes. song? It was recorded by Alan Lomax in 1924. You'll hear the quiet of his voice if you don't know it. Um, uh, that Mississippi John Hurt was in those days not a professional singer. He had a quiet voice. And this is a ballad that he created uh, out of the story of a of a pistol fight between a bunch of young men and his little Mississippi town in that terrible era of the Klan when young black men were fighting against each other, gunning each other down. This, I think this is one of the great art songs in the American repertoire. And today on Living Writers, Robert Hass on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Angel laid him away. Angel laid him away. 
today. Robert Hass is here. Bob, thanks for um, picking the song to play. Um, Isn't it amazing? Yes. Piece? It's just astonishing. I'll just, shall I pick up from there in the midst of this poem? So hearing that sound of blues come into my head. This is the third part. You can fall a long way in sunlight. You can fall a long way in the rain. The ones who don't take the old white horse take the morning train. When you go down into the city of the dead with its whitewashed walls and winding alleys and avenues of autumnal lindens and the heavy bells tolling by the sea, crowds appear in all directions, having left their benches and tiered plazas, having laid aside their occupations of reverie and gossip gossip and the memory of breathing to hear what scraps of news they can from this world where the air is thin at high altitudes and smells of pine and of almost perfect density in valleys where trees on summer afternoons sometimes throw violet shadows across sidewalks. Only the arborist in the park never stirs for the new arrivals. He's not incurious, but he has his work. It's he who decides which limbs get lopped off in the city of the dead. You can fall a long way in sunlight. You can fall a long way in the rain. The ones who don't take the old white horse take the evening train. Today, his body is consigned to the flames, and I begin to understand why people would want to carry a body to the river's edge and build a platform of wood and burn it in the wind and scatter the ashes in the river, as if to say, take him, fire, take him, air, and river, take him, downstream, downstream. Watch the ashes disappear in the fast water or in a small flaring of anger, turn away, walk back toward the markets and the hum of life, not quite saying to yourself, there the hell with it, it's done. I said to him once when he'd gotten into some scrape or other, you know, you have the impulse control of a ferret. And he said, yeah, I don't know what a ferret is. I know I get greedy. I don't mean to, but I, I know I get greedy. He had an old grubber's beard going gray, wheelchair, sweats, street person's baseball cap. I've been thinking about Billie Holiday. He said, you know, if she were here now, she'd be nothing. You know what I mean? Hip-hop, never. See, she had to be born at a time when they were writing the kinds of songs and people were listening to the kind of songs she was great at singing. 
And I would say, you just got evicted from your apartment. You can't walk. You have no money. So I don't want to talk to you right now about Billie Holiday, okay? And he would say, you know, I'm like mom. I mean, she really had a genius for denial, don't you think? And the thing is, you know, she was a pretty happy person. And I would say she was not a happy person. She was panicky. She was crippled by guilt because of her drinking. She was evasive to herself about herself. And her only defense was to be chronically cheerful. And he would say, worse things than cheerful. Well, I am through with those arguments, except in my head. And not through, I see, with the habit, I thought this poem would end downriver, downriver, the habit of worrying about where you are and how you're doing. So that's the, that's the August Notebook elegy. That is that last part is so so sad that <sighs> well the whole the the habit of wondering yeah. where you are and how you're doing I'm sorry yeah. yes it was a it was a hard thing but it was, I felt the only I mean Cheslov trying to talking about hanging on to things I felt like in that bit of writing I got his voice which was something you know so I thought well there's doesn't doesn't and his doesn't take away from the fact that he had such a difficult and in some ways tormented life, but it was, uh, I felt like I got a little bit of his voice in, into the poem. And so that's a, a tiny bit of immortality then for him, his voice in a maybe, way. Maybe, maybe. I mean, if you believe Shakespeare's sonnets, you know, as <laughs> there's, a, What's not uh, to there's, a, there's a poet named, uh, uh, who was a contemporary of Catullus, named uh, back in, it would have been like a hundred years before the birth of Christ, um, named Calvus, or Calvus, I guess the Romans would have said, they pronounced their Vs as W, Calvus. And um, uh, only very scraps of his poems survive. And there's a Brooklyn poet named Charles Martin who translated this, the, and he called them the ruins of Calvus. <laughs> and there are things like, but my words shall never... <laughs> Blank, 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 blank. <laughs> your thighs, your violet eyes, and all my just anyway, it's scrap. So who knows what, what, where immortality? What pieces is going remain? To be. Right? Little bits of, of little bits of, uh, uh, little bit. You know where? Have you seen the documentary about where used computers go to die? No. Most of them are shipped to China. Where all the this is about the paper and, and computer thing. Most of them are shipped to China, where they're burned, and all the plastic goes into the air. And in the dry ashes, uh, they uh, women, peasant women go through barefoot, picking metals out for recycling. So maybe all of the last bits of our poems are going to be uh, <laughs> burned on the hard drives of. Uh, of uh, of uh, in piles of, of dead ashes, computers and ashes, on old and computers and ashes, and someone's toes may or may not <laughs> dig them, nudge them in, back into come across little gleaming bits of titanium <laughs> chips, that... and then the poems re- that's like us being part of dead stars, right? We're all made of this universal matter, yeah. and that's kind of that idea. Oh wow! Oh well. For the writing, 
when you were writing in that notebook, uh-huh. there's a part of you then that's aware that this is like a long, could be a longer project. Yeah. And is there, as a, as a poet with, um, so there was no way you were going to veer away from the loss. Like that would be what you would, when your brother mm-hmm. that morning, when you woke mm-hmm. up, that's why you had to start with that moment. Bob? Yeah. And then, you know, of course this is an, uh, finally it's an artifice, you know, I mean, I re I, you write them, you write, do them, do them as a daily practice and then work and then work on them to give them the, the shape of, uh, of, uh, sometimes, you know, what seems like, can't seem whether it does here or not vividly like the the actual voice speaking it takes a lot of labor to get to yeah yes like with the ferret like when yeah. you were hearing that part were you in writing in the notebook uh-huh. were you um because it, it feels like you get a lot in there not only showing him but with the frustration and anger because of your love wanting mm-hmm. him to be okay mm-hmm. and feeling like he's not mm-hmm. getting it yeah Yes, and I, you know, and and in in this case, you know, where you, um, everybody knows this in some form in their families, the whole business of tough love and ne'er do wells, and how you deal with that, and the the lucky survivor with with their righteous anger that they don't earn because something the gene pool or the luck of chance gave them a better uh, handle up on life than. Uh, brother or sister, but to feel the burden of worrying about yeah. those who you love, yeah. And there's that great film. It's with um, Laura Linney and that oh, astonishing no. actor who Mark plays her. Ruff, 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 yeah, plays her younger brother. Yes. Do you remember the name? I should because a friend just said it on Monday. It was mentioned. Yeah, the title. Lonergan was the is the director of it. I think I I saw a list. Some like a long critic time. make a list of the ten yeah. best movies of the last twenty five years, and it was on that list. It I, it's just heartbreaking piece of work. Two of the best performances in American film in the last. Yeah, sister years, you know. and sister younger and brother. brother yeah. Yes. Like and the, like, and the brother had been the failure and the sister is and is always in trouble and comes back to his older sister and she's the feels herself to be the kind of dull, hard working, dutiful one and it's amazing. Her performance is just amazing. Well maybe we'll maybe we'll find out. We'll take a short <laughs> break. <laughs> and we'll be we'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers um today on the program. Robert Hass is here. The Apple Trees at Olima. New and Selected Poems. We'll be back. You can count on me. Bingo. Um, 
Thanks. It was our, thanks to Liz, our, our Liz, our producer, who, who she was nailed it. Yeah. So, folks, if you haven't seen it, go find it and and do brace yourselves because it's it's um piercingly sad. Yes, and and you're um. Bob, I'm so glad you're you're here. Thanks for being on the radio again. Well, it's this, a pleasure to be time. here with you. <laughs> on the, in the morning, in the rainy morning. <laughs> rainy right? morning in Ann Arbor. Although hopefully when, when people hear this, it will be a sunny afternoon. Uh-huh. We can hope. Yeah. We, uh, we were talking about music to go out on, and I... And uh, not knowing that it was going to be a rainy morning, I had just recently heard Lester Young do um, A Foggy Day in London Town. And I was thinking as I was walking over here on State Street and in the in the September, almost October morning rain, that that was really a, the perfect song for this purpose. But in fact, I think we're going to do Lester Leaps In, is what you folks will be hearing last on the way out. And and how? what's that one, the Lester Leaps In? Is it a bit jollier by the sounds of it? Or? It, it is, and it's also, his, you know, his. it's one of the signature, another of the signature pieces of American music, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, thanks for picking those tunes for us today for the program. And well, well, Bob, let's talk a let's talk a little bit more about these new poems. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like um, that you've got this plan where there'll be like almost a book like the separate notebooks, but the notebooks. I or, maybe yeah. I hope there will be. Uh, it um, and it, as I've done it. I, I, there was some impulse also was to speaking of rain in in September and to to name the California seasons that you know it's a Mediterranean climate it's dry in the summertime it starts to rain in October um, winters are rainy but they're green so it's a kind of spring actually winter because it's been drought all summer and, and I started to write about September and I found myself beginning with with stories and then I thought well um, I, I guess it's because my profession I teach for a living so all, I never stopped going to school so <laughs> and so there's the feeling of starting a new story every fall in, in, I don't know if and that's incredibly who, true <laughs> I don't know if people who aren't who aren't uh, in academic life experience that, but I always feel that the end of summer and the beginning of the fall is the turning of a page, much more profoundly New Year oh, than, yes. than New Year's <laughs> is. Um, and is that why these stories are? Is this the poem? Is it the one that's in David's voice or which? No, which this is, the... well, this is, uh, this is uh, again, just notebook musings. The oh, first okay thing is a little two-line poem that goes everything everyone comes here from a long way off is a line from a poem I read last night now whether that's a poem or whether that's enough there was something about the relation between the saying of the thing and then the saying that anyway I don't yes, want to talk no, no. myself no the no next, no but the next <laughs> little bit great. the next little bit is driving up 80 in the haze they talked and talked Smoke in the air simmering from wildflowers. His story was sad. Her story was roiled, troubled. That was, you know, again, I've spent years doing haiku, translating haiku, so I was trying to do this small thing. But then I thought, well, so the next bit goes, here's an alternative. A man and a woman, old friends, are in a theater 
watching a movie in which a man and a woman, who are old friends, are driving through summer on a mountain road. The woman is describing the end of her marriage and sobbing, shaking her head and laughing and sobbing. The man is watching the road, listening. He's always been a very good listener, his own story more diffuse and his own unhappiness more diffuse and in abeyance. And because in the restaurant before the film, the woman had been describing the end of her marriage and cried, they're not sure whether they are in the theater or on the mountain road, and when the timber truck comes suddenly around the bend, they both flinch. It was a little trapdoor story. Other story, and then the flinch led me to names for involuntary movements of the body. Squirm, wince, flinch, shudder. Sound like a law firm in Dickens. <laughs> Mr. Flinch took off his black gloves as if he were skinning his hands. Quiver dipped the nib of his pen into the throat of the inkwell. And then I started fooling with it. Once there were two sisters called Knock Me and Sock Me. Their best friend was a bear called Always Arguing. What kind of animals were the two sisters, one child asked. Maybe they were raccoons, said the other. Or pandas, said the first. They could be pandas. <laughs> it's good to sit down to birthday cake with children who think it is the entire point of life and who therefore respect each detail of the ceremony. There ought to be a rule, he thought, for who gets to lick the knife that cuts the cake, and that rule should have its pattern somewhere in the winter's stars. Which do you add to the tea first, he asked, the sugar or the milk? And the child had said instantly, the milk. <laughs> Laws as cool and angular as words. Angular, sidereal, and so on. And so I, I so love those it's, connections. So it's and riffs on links. stories and storytelling. Yeah. And so why, and why do you think that's something that's it, it kind of, it's got your attention now? I don't know why. I don't know why, but well, uh, yeah. Um, what do I think? Maybe it ha I'm 70. Maybe it has to do with um, thinking about the shapes of lives and the shapes of stories and if there's any relation between them. Something like that. Maybe. I'm not even sure yet. You know, I'm, uh, I'm on the scent, but I don't know quite where I'm going yet. Uh, do you want another little one of these riffs? She looked beautiful and looked her age, too. She had a go at putting herself together. She'd always had the confidence that with a face like hers, a few touches to represent the idea of a put-together look would do, like some set designer's genius minimalism. It gave her, a, it had a slightly Harridan effect, and he remembered that it wasn't what she was headlong, what was headlong or slapdash about her, but the way that they gestured like a quotation at an understanding of elegance she thought it would be boring to spell out that had first dazzled him about her. He felt himself stirring at this recognition and at a certain memory that attended it and then laughed at the thought that he'd actually stimulated himself sexually with an analysis of her style. And she said, seeing him smile, as if she were remembering the way he could make her insecure. What? What are you smiling about? And he said, oh, nothing. And she said, oh, right, I remember nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so you're really having fun with these, right? The next part goes, two jokes walked into a bar. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
A cage went in search of a bird. Three rabbits walk into a penguin. A boy walks out in the morning with a gun. Which is another the beginning, beginning of, of another, snowy egret. Yeah. 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 So anyway, yeah. And so and just and to snow so yeah, you are having fun. <laughs> Do you think did have you ever had this level of fun with it before? Yeah. Oh good. <laughs> <laughs> I have. Not often, but sometimes, yeah. Yeah, it's, do you think? Well, when you say not often, what do you mean, Bob? What it, well, I the what you what I you know what you go to. Uh, I imagine whatever art you practice, the one you're practicing right now, doing this, you do it because it's deep, absorbed work that engages you, and it's the best gift that anything gives you. Whatever you find that you kind of just self-forgetfully do, and that's when writing goes well. That's the wonderful thing about writing. Sometimes it's hard. In other ways, you know, taxing what's going on, you're thinking hard, working hard. Sometimes it, the play and invention of it is fun. There's, only, there's one story about um, Pushkin, the great Russian poet, that um, he gambled a lot. So he'd be out playing cards at night, and he did his writing like between 3 in the morning and, and, and uh, late, like 10, and then he would go to sleep. And... There, one of his landladies who lived downstairs from him records that at breakfast in the morning when she would get up, he would be just finishing his writing and uh, she would hear him punching his hand with his fisted other hand saying to himself, boy, Alexei, boy, you son of a gun. You know? So I, I thought, oh, he had fun. Everyone thought he must have thought that he'd, he'd written a line that really nailed it or something right. like that. That's when it's fun. Yes. <laughs> yes. And when you can, um, when you're reading it and it feels like it's in a, because you're sitting here in the studio, uh -huh. but in a way it also felt like you are transported back to the moment when you were actually writing it too yeah. i can almost imagine it yeah it's true about reading i mean that you kind of re-enter the that's that's where poets live is in the rhythms of the words in the sentences and so it's a it's a practically a physical place that you enter when you read your poems that's a beautiful thought and that's something what is so, so literally, you, you, could you, you brought it up, Bob, you said, well, perhaps it's because I'm 70. This is something that you have been dedicated, lived within this, this music of language, this rhythm, your entire life, really. Adult life. Well, yeah. I mean, we all have in some way poets more <laughs> particularly, but yeah. Because I wonder about that. I read somewhere. I don't know if it's true that you you had maybe you had thought picture fancied yourself maybe a novelist at first, uh -huh. but then the beats maybe came in mm -hmm. and gave you this window into poems. But then you took a. To it's not like that was not who you were. Yeah. Because you went to Stanford. You yeah. and then and you um, you took elements like yeah. like the. The, the nature of uh, yeah. Gary Snow, or what? Yeah, and it was it was it was the beats among others, but there were so many. Uh, I was in my early twenties and vaguely wanting to be a writer. I'd written some poems, I'd written some short stories. I was in love with the essays of James Baldwin. I was trying to write essays, and um, and and then I started reading the poets. The 
the Beats, among others, but I was reading, you know, Robert Lowell's yes. Bishop. I was reading John Ashbery and Frank O'Hare, and just suddenly this seemed like there was an incredible range of poetry doing, getting at uh, a tremendous range of, of American experience. The novelists of that era that I was reading, you know, Malamud, Roth, Bellow, Cheever, Updike, I thought were interesting, but they didn't blow me away the way Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and and uh, Dickens and Henry James blew me away. But the poetry did, and uh, so I started working at it. And it seems like it's just it's there's no way to um, sequester it away from from your life. Like when you when you were the, when you were doing the stint as the poet laureate uh-huh. and all that work, yeah. you 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 mentioned that there's pieces of poems would come to you if you were riding a train. Or... Yeah, not as often as they should have when you're doing that. You know, it was it was in a way doing doing uh, being a public person is the opposite of writing poetry in a lot of ways. So. Yeah. Uh, so. Occasionally it visited me, but 